Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 23, end of the book. If you get to John, you've gone too far. Uh, we will be picking up at verse 44 right in the middle, but there's context to all of this. Luke has shown through the, the entire gospel, he has focused on the actions of Jesus Christ, what he's done, what he's taught, and the Godhead of the covenant being just embraced in a new covenant that's open to all people. Luke's writing to the Gentiles. Part of the argument of the book of Luke is Jesus was for Gentiles as much as he was for Jews. And he's shown that throughout his book. To a historian, the least important part is the part that everybody knows. Think about this. If I write a history book about World War II, I don't have a chapter arguing that World War II actually happened. I just skip that part. Or I just say it as a matter of fact. And when the U.S. entered the battle and, and stormed the beaches of Normandy. But a historian typically doesn't argue that the storming of the beaches of Normandy actually happened. So one of the things with Luke that I think is notable about chapter 23 is he barely mentions the crucifixion. It happened, but there's no like argument for it or description of it. And with Matthew, we get a lot more detail, a lot more conversations, a lot more what the Jews were thinking, what they were doing. Luke's literally like he died and he moves on. We're going to see that in the coming verses. Um, the passage highlights six different groups of people. And we saw that last week. You got the believers that are scared, chapter 22, verse 57. They got their eyes on other things besides Jesus. Unbelievers that are threatened, 2271. Unbelievers that seek this world over Jesus, 23, verse 1. Believers that want to be entertained, namely Herod, he's got his eyes on himself, 23 verse 8. And this mob of people that just go whichever way the wind blows, chapter 23 verse 18. And then you got the believers that weep, which is unique to Luke that he points this out. You got believers that weep and lament, chapter 23 verse 27. They got their eyes on the things, the earthly woes and just the horribleness of the situation. And then finally, at the end of chapter 342, you've got a believer that asks for forgiveness. He believes in Jesus, and he asks for forgiveness. I received the due reward of my deeds, but this Jesus has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we have the first person that puts his faith in Jesus for the afterlife is a criminal on a cross that literally could do nothing in his own works to earn that salvation. And it, and it opens up this floodgate of opportunity for all Gentiles, all Jews, everyone on earth. That's all you need to do. And then you get Christians that get all judgmental. But you, you should do all these other things. Yes, James, we understand that. Yes, John, we understand. There's more to do afterwards. But the essential act of salvation, you need do nothing but put your faith in Jesus Christ for the afterlife. Everything else is icing on the cake. There are tons of blessings in living a godly lifestyle. The, the criminal on the cross didn't experience any of those blessings, yet his faith was in Jesus Christ. In humility, admission of sin, putting Jesus as Lord, and asking Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And the verse 44 starts with the word now, the, the immediate presence. It's like we're in the book of Mark for a sentence. 
Luke uses this immediate moment like all of this is happening at the same time. This salvation happens. Now it was about the sixth hour, which means noon in our language. It was about noon, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, 33 A.D., 333. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was born, torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. A Roman historian Phlegon also records this darkening of the sun. It was the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. There was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. So we have, and, and I'm just naming one, there are three different Roman historians that record this event. It happened in this part of the world. The unique aspect of this or why they mark it in the book of Luke is it's a historical benchmark because everyone in this part of the world recognized and saw that this thing happened in 33 AD at three o'clock. So he marks it and he points it down because the important part of what happened about that day is that Jesus breathed his last breath. Yet everybody in the Gentile world recognized this um, solar eclipse. By the way, at Passover, there's supposed to be a full moon. So if there's a full moon because it's Passover, it's naturally impossible to eclipse the sun during a full moon part of the cycle. So my under and I, I'm not I, I don't understand the science of this, but you look it up and it is it's actually impossible for that to happen because of the position of the sun when it's at a full moon. So for this event to happen, the astrologers of the Roman world would have not understood what happened here. It would have been an absolutely miraculous, phenomenal event. Of all the Bible miracles, this is one that usually people read over and well, it was an eclipse. We know what that is, but a solar eclipse. Uh, darkness all over the earth at noon, it, it really doesn't happen naturally. There's something that has to be going on for that to happen. The veil of the temple was torn in two. There's no mention of the earthquake in the book of Luke, like there is in the Roman histories, but he does mention the veil tearing. Again, the, the temple system of the Jews, that covenant is over. And, the, and we're not talking about like a thin, wispy curtain that we have. We're talking about a three-inch thick set of fabrics, woven linens with detailed, uh, what do you call it, embroidery all over it with heavy, heavy leathers and whatnot put in it. This was a wall of fabric. So for it to tear, it'd be like tearing a phone book in half, right? So this event happens, and Luke points that out, I think, to speak to the image of it. Matthew that veil is a, of an image for the Jews of the separation between God and mankind. We're not God. God isn't human. And Matthew makes a large point about that. For Luke, that's a symbol of the Jewish system, that this is a God of the Jews. But that of the Jews thing gets erased with the veil getting torn. For Matthew, it's important that it tears from the top down. For Luke, that's not an issue. I, you know, Again, for the Jews, it's God that tore the curtain, not humans that tore the curtain. But for the Jews, it's like everyone has access to the Holy of Holies. For Luke, Jesus is more important than Judaism. Jesus trumps Judaism. And this is part of the, the, the idea. It's not Jews and, and it's not just Jews and Gentiles. Now it's everybody and Christians. And it changes the dynamic of the planet. Jesus cries out in a loud voice. It's significant. Luke knows what he's doing here. 
He's a doctor after all. A crucifixion essentially suffocates the person on the cross. So to shout in a loud voice is almost a miracle. Another miracle in that sentence that you might read right over because you can't get the breath to shout. So this idea that he's shouting out or doing it could just be that he's an incredibly strong carpenter and he's using all of his last bit of strength and it's an adrenaline kick at the very end. It could also just be that the Lord gives him the strength to say this out loud. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my, my spirit. Again, we just got done where Luke points out that Jesus told those women not to weep for him. So Luke doesn't write this in a way that we're going to weep for Jesus. He doesn't tug at our heartstrings because that's not the point of the crucifixion. The point here is that Jesus commits his spirit. The idea of the word there for commit conveys the idea of a gift or an offering. What he does on the cross is he's going to go into the Holy of Holies in heaven for real and he's giving himself as a gift or an offering for that event. This is important. In the beginning of the chapter and in the last chapter, he's named a king, he's named a prophet. The act of high priest, the priests never call him a priest. But in doing this, I commit my spirit, he's actually acting as his own high priest. It's the word that a priest would use when he gives a sacrifice. So he's giving his spirit because, quite frankly, nobody takes Jesus' physical life except for Jesus. And, and, and he has to give it himself. If there's any question about the voluntary nature of this offering, the fact that he gives it verbally is right there. Now here's the deal. When a priest gives the Passover lamb and he goes into the Holy of Holies, they tie a string around his leg because if God doesn't accept the offering, the result is death. And then they can haul the priest out of the Holy of Holies by a string. He's got bells on his little robe so that if the bells stop ringing, they know something might have happened to this guy. So the, the idea that he's giving an offering and he's going to go into the Holy of Holies, if he dies in there, it means God didn't accept the offering as just or as a perfect offering. There's something wrong with the hearts of the people doing it. Anything's wrong with the offering, the high priest will die in that Holy of Holies. In this particular instance, however, Jesus doesn't stay in there. For three days, he comes out alive, meaning God accepted that offering. So you'll get this question from non-believers. How can the death of one human being cover all of humanity? And the answer to that question, biblically, is because God accepted the offering. If Jesus died and stayed dead, it means God didn't accept that offering. But when Jesus commits his spirit as a gift or offering for the world, or everybody technically in his household or in his family, which is the law of Passover. Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house and everybody in that house is saved. So when Jesus says, you're my brothers, you're my sisters, anybody who wants to come into the wedding feast is welcomed as part of my family. And then he goes on a cross and he says, Father, I commit my spirit to you. I'm giving me as an offering for my family, not a substituted lamb. Because lambs are animals. They don't justly match human beings. So the spiritual death that happens here is not because he rises from the grave, spiritual death and physical death are not the same thing. He dies a physical death, but he also gives his spirit over. He's not talking about his body here when he says this. So in chapter 22, 42, he takes the cup of wrath. He doesn't want the spiritual death. I'd prefer to not go through this if there's any other way, Lord, but not my will, but yours. 
And in doing this, he actually is going to physically die. And with his last breaths, one of the things he does is he commits his spirit to the Lord. I'm going to give you my spirit too. So even at the end, there's nothing here about this that implies that Jesus did it involuntarily, that he didn't know what was happening, that he was overwhelmed by the things of this world. He has control right up to the end. I think that's what Luke is trying to say. He breathes his last. His physical carnal body is gone. His spirit is committed to whatever judgment is going to happen. And Jesus has become then a substitute for his family. Um, and all of the sins are put upon him just like the scapegoat of the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 16.9, if you want to see where that is. And Aaron shall bring out a goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. All the priests would gather around, they'd put their hands on the sin offering, and they have laid, laid hands on Jesus. Like They have abused him and beat him, and Luke made sure we saw that. They placed their hands on the goat, transferring the sin to that goat. If you don't have the money for a sin offering or a gift, you can do a pigeon, a lamb, a bull, whatever you can afford can be this substitutionary thing. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also the whole world. This is the Christian belief. So our faith, our religion is Christ crucified and our hope is in Christ. And the reason we put our hope in Christ is because he rises from the dead to be the propitiation for our sins. And God, we know that God's accepted that gift because he rose from the dead. God accepted it and the high priest was able to leave death or that place of death, the presence of God, without being killed. There was no impurity in Jesus. There was nothing wrong with Jesus to where he would die in the presence of God. The fact that he rose again says he was sinless because any sin in the presence of God burns up. So like gold being refined, there's nothing to refine out of Jesus. So in this, the old mankind dies. Adam was in a garden. Adam and Eve failed. There were consequences to their sin. The consequence was death. But here comes a new Adam that doesn't pay the consequence because there is no sin. So, Verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Isn't it interesting how Luke has a Gentile be the first person to announce this? Surely this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done. They beat their breasts and returned. The crowd just flips on a dime again. Notice how Luke's going through all those different groups from last week. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him, that's two different groups, from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. So these groups all have reactions to the death of Jesus, not just the accusations. It was humanity's job, uh, this, this centurion, likely it was he was the crucifixion guy for Jerusalem. So the Romans would place one person in charge of crucifixion because it was a science, it was perfected, and they wanted one person who knew how to do it the right way to exert the most pain and keep the person alive for as long as possible. But this guy recognizes and surely was a righteous man, declares with his mouth the righteousness of God. This guy died and he, had, he was innocent. Every group of believer declares or acts as if Jesus was innocent. Even in the carrying of the cross, it's mandated under Roman law that the criminal has to carry their own cross. Yet, Part of the way there, they hand off the cross and put it on Simon. He does because he's not guilty. 
So everything about this in the book of Luke is an innocent man just got killed. And he's glorif he glorifies God, not Jesus. Certainly this was a righteous man and he glorifies God. This is a Roman guy glorifying Yahweh. And it make this, this idea, it's not just a testimony, it's worship. The idea here is the Roman centurion converts to the Jewish God watching a righteous man die. How does that even happen outside of the Holy Spirit? The, the crowd starts to beat its breasts and return. I don't know why, but I get this image of like this thing. I don't, I don't know what that looks like for them to do it. Um, but the entire mob does a 180 at the death of Jesus. Like there's this regret, this guilt. It's almost like that hour where the, the, the figurative hour that Jesus said evil is going to reign on earth. It's almost like at Jesus' death, that hour just stops. And people just see clearly like, what were we doing? Why did we kill this guy? He was the centurion. He's innocent. The crowd is like regretting what just happened. The guilt of an innocent man is now on the people. So you've got the guilt of Adam and Eve bringing sin into the world, but you've also got in rejecting Jesus, the guilt of rejecting Jesus added to this. Verse 49, but all, and then it says, stood at a distance. In contrast to the crowd, those disciples and followers that, were, that are far away, there's just this sense of watching everything happen. The anger of the crowd surges and grows in the last two chapters. It's bloodthirsty. And then in a moment, it's just remorse. Wow, it's like a hangover for spiritual life. What just happened? A number of confirming events, a number of different groups bearing witness. Yes, he died. Luke has interviewed these people. It's why he's referencing them. Like notes to those close to Jesus because they're going to be part of the next book. Right? These are all personalities and characters and groups that get highlighted in the book of Acts. And Luke's setting them up here. They all failed, and it's foundational. The Romans, the crowd, the followers, the women, and now you've got a priest in Jesus Christ. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. That's the Sanhedrin. He's a priest, a good and just man. So here's the next group. He had not consented to their decision and deed. Well, it would have been nice to know that in the last chapter, but Luke paints a different picture then. And here he's showing in every one of these groups, there were individuals that didn't buy into it. They didn't follow the crowd. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. The now behold, Luke uses this word a number of times. It's interesting where Luke wants our attention. He uses this phrase. Look at this. In other words, don't look at the crucifixion that just happened. Look at this. Look, there's a guy here that after it happens, prior to the resurrection, recognizes the injustice of it. So this is useful, especially if you're going to read the scriptures. Like your kids start falling asleep and then you go, now behold! And you shout, and, and, and I think Luke meant it that way. He uses it 32 times. The last time he used it was in chapter 22, 47, when the mob showed up in the garden. There were no beholds for Luke all the way through the crucifixion. So now we're coming out of that hole. The rich man stepping up for a criminal crucified is another striking contrast. In, in the sense of human nature, this is a miracle too. Joseph of Arimathea just saw a man get killed for blasphemy and he's giving him his tomb. There's no resurrection yet. The, the power of God has not been proven 
conclusively in a resurrection, and Joseph of Arimathea sees an injustice, and he goes and he does something to make it right. To the Gentile reader, this was more than just a rebel or a rabble rouser or even a criminal. This was an innocent man that just got killed. And so we see these reactions from each of the groups. The beholds are significant parts of the book of Luke. Uh, to the Pentecost, the scars on the hands for Thomas, the Emmaus Road at the end of this chapter, the resurrection in, in, that, that just happened. And the, we have all these beholds throughout the book of Luke, and it's setting it up. It is essential to understand that Joseph steps up and does this for Jesus before anybody else did anything. And he puts his neck out there to do it. Literally, he's got a lot to lose if he's a council member. But he's a good and just man is the argument Luke gives us. It's important to note that. Like, I think there's, we understand what does it mean to be saved? And this guy doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, yet he's a good and a just man. He lives under the law of God. And Luke's pointing this out, that, that he's actually taking action based on his beliefs. And showing us that not everybody on the council was an enemy of God. That there was this mob atmosphere. Arimathea means heights. It's at the birthplace of Samuel. It's right by Mount Ephraim. It's a small enough place that he points this out to the Jews. And you think, okay, what's Luke trying to say by pointing out that he's from Arimathea? And I think part of the idea is he was from a small town. So if you're in the government and, you, and you're down in, in, at the capital and you say, where's this person from? And you say, oh, this person's from Medelia, Minnesota. That's, that's Sean from Medelia. Well, where's Medelia is the reaction a lot of people would have. Yet here's a wealthy man from a very small town. It would have been known maybe to priests because of Samuel's birthplace, but it wasn't called that when Samuel was born there. So he points out this idea that this is somebody kind of from a small town and he's waiting for the kingdom of God is the other description we get for him. Praise God, even an intellectual can seek the kingdom of God. Like I find this really re relieving, right? Even people that study their whole life can actually seek Christ and instead of getting lost in it. Every group stands guilty, but in every group there's an exception to the rule. There's a centurion for the Romans there's the women uh, drawing near or being at a distance, but they're still there. There's even a priest that sees the injustice of the whole thing. So this man went to Pilate. Again, think of what he's risking here. Pilate just sentenced this guy to death. And Romans don't value life like we do. This man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The typical practice of the Romans was to leave that body on the cross and let it rot. Then he took it down, wrapped it, implying Pilate gave him permission. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever laid before. Brand new tomb. Pilate gives the courtesy, in other words, from that group, the Pilate group, Pilate actually does the right thing and lets them bury this man with some dignity. The hour of darkness is over and everybody's waking up from it going, what just happened? So Joseph didn't stop the crime, but when he can, he does what he can to serve the Lord. This also saves the people of Israel more guilt. Joseph, over any of the other priests, actually does the right thing under the law of God. Deuteronomy 21, 22, if a man committed a sin deserving death, he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. 
His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which is the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed by God. That's an interesting, weird, obscure law in the Old Testament. But Joseph uses that law and gets Jesus into a tomb and buries him the same day because he doesn't want the land to be cursed. So Joseph could be doing this just because he's looking out for the people and doing what God says. Also note that Deuteronomy was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Right? So hanging on a tree meant totally different things to them. Joseph faithfully remembers the law and he does what he needs to. A couple other things in that verse. The word hewn in verse 53, it means it was carved or crafted. In other words, they didn't build the tomb with blocks. They carved it out of the side of a hill. This is an enormous amount of money. I think like if you want to get a custom wood-carved door on the front of your house, how much you're going to pay for something like that. Then just multiply that because now we're going to carve out a stone and you're going to build a tomb that you can walk into. The way they use tombs is there'd be one big kind of pedestal in the middle of the room and a bunch of shelves around the side. They'd let the body decay and rot and turn to just bone over a course of a few months. And then they would go back in, collect all the bones, crumble them down, put them in an ossuary, and put that ossuary up on the shelf. So if you had a family tomb, you would bury people on that same pedestal and let the body decay, and then put the you'd have a whole room full of these little jars, ossuaries. So when it says that no one had lain there before, it means it was an empty tomb. This is important, I think, for this idea. If Jesus just gave his life for his family and to cover the sins of his family, how big of a tomb does he need? And he's not going to use a tomb that belongs to another family. If he's the first that dies and gets buried in that tomb, that becomes the family tomb. Only Jesus' family tomb never gets used because there's no grave. I'm going to get into that a little bit. But it's a brand new tomb establishing a new family tomb when he gets buried there. And I think the Gentiles would have understood that right alongside the Jews. Verse 54, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. This is why he does all this. Again, the Deuteronomy piece. He wraps it in linen, lays it in the tomb. This explains what's going to come next. Wrapping it in linen was doing it because it's getting to be about 6 o'clock in the evening. So if they want to do this on the same day, they're doing it quick. Usually when you buried somebody, you would, uh, you would do the oiling, you'd do the perfuming, you would treat the body so when it rots, it doesn't stink like death as bad. Make sense? And then you'd wrap it in linen. So what he's saying when, it, when he wraps it in linen is that this was kind of a quick job that they just did. And then verse 54 is the explanation for why. It's because sunset was coming. They had to get this done quickly. So they wrap it in linen, they lay it in a tomb, and again, fulfilling more prophecies. Isaiah 53, 9, great chapter to read around the crucifixion. This is just one verse. They made his grave with the wicked. He died with criminals, but with the rich at his death, but he gets buried in a rich man's tomb. How does that even happen? How do you die a criminal and get laid in a rich man's tomb? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. People felt guilty after this happened. Hundreds of years prior, this is all called out by Isaiah. Prophecy, prophecy, everything perfectly done, everything laid out. He dies a criminal, but he's buried with the rich. And the women who had come with him from Galilee, here's that group that got told not to weep. 
The women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. No doubt about where he was buried. Like, this is a big deal. This is one of the criticisms that, that has come up in recent years is, well, he got buried in an unmarked grave. Verse 54, this historian claims a very different thing. They knew where the tomb was. They knew where his body was laid. They watched it all happen. And as they watched it happen, they thought, he didn't get the oils and the perfumes. So what they think to themselves is, after Sabbath is over, we'll come back to the tomb and properly dress the body because they loved Jesus. So they're serving Jesus even after he's, what they think, he's died. So they want to finish the proper burial. Again, with Luke, this is just more eyewitnesses with the intention to return and do this. The disciples say they will be there, but they're not there. It's the women that are there. So Joseph and the women didn't make such promises, but they quietly serve, they honor, and they hold Jesus as precious. And as they do this, they honor Jesus in every way. The disciples promise to do it, but they, they fail to do anything. The women and Joseph made no big glorious promises, but they do everything to honor Jesus after his death. Just wonderful. Verse 56, And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. they got to wait till Sabbath is over in order to treat or touch a dead body. Every other world religion on earth ends at this point. The leader of the religion dies. And that's the end of the religion. And they carry on by honoring this leader over time. But they're dead and gone. Luke, however, has one more chapter. And we're going to dig into that a little bit today, but we're not going to finish it today. I'm so glad there's one more chapter. And this is part of why we get through this. And then you have this Again, look at the verse 1 of Luke 24. The word now is there. Again, he uses that strong connecting word. Now this happened. The point isn't the crucifixion. It's and, 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 then, and now. Now this is what's going on. So the present tense. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and other certain women, they've added women to this group, with them came to the tombs bringing spices which they had prepared but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Everything changes. This is Luke's focus. Now on the first day, means he died on Friday at 3. Saturday the Sabbath happens. Sunday a.m. on the third day, they go back to the tomb to show up. And, and again, the day isn't like full 24-hour periods. It's these three days that are in there. Sunday then becomes the day of worship for Christians. We don't worship on Saturdays. We worship on Sundays. As Again, we see this as we get into Luke's Acts, chapter 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, as soon as the first generation of Christians, people that saw the crucifixion, they were doing worship on Sundays. So this tradition isn't something that got added by Constantine or anything like that. It was an immediate tradition by the Christians. This is a huge indicator that Sunday, something happened on a Sunday that meant change the day of worship to this day. Because this is the day they want to celebrate. Not the death of Jesus or the time he was in the grave, but the resurrection of Jesus. That becomes the important part. It says they in verse 1 of chapter 24. That goes all the way back to verse 55. The women who had come with him, his Galilean followers. And then in verse 56 it says they again. But that's where we're at. This first group now has added these certain other women, a growing number of them. So 
the history here is they make no attempt to clarify a few things. He died. The women saw where he was buried. This is stuff everybody knew. We have entire sections of the library that are apologetics that are being written today to defend or explain the crucifixion. They don't get a lot of material from the book of Luke because Luke's like everybody knows this happened. And like any good historian, uh, it, he, he only worries about the things that were the things of his day that needed to be explained. Matthew 28, 13, the priests have an official explanation for the resurrection that the disciples took the body. So part of what Luke's doing here is he's, he's challenging that belief of the first century that the temple priests were willfully trying to sell to the public. So they create this face, fake narrative and they do this, but Luke's story is actually the women knew exactly where he was buried and that when they got there, verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The disciples had nothing to do with this. And Luke makes it very clear because he's done the interviews, he's done the conversations, and the disciples didn't take the body. So that's the argument Luke's trying to make. Today, there's 50 other arguments around the resurrection. But the argument Luke's concerned with isn't whether or not it happened. It's how did the stone get rolled away? And what like how did that move? By the way, these stones were massive, room-sized stones that would take four to six grown men to roll them. So for a stone to get rolled in front of a tomb, the, the Romans were locking that thing up. And for it to get rolled away, it would take a small contingent of strong, healthy men to get that stone to budge. So if they had a couple of Roman guards in front of it, um, also noted in this picture between the Gospels, uh, that stone, something happened to move the stone away. And that's the point Luke makes. Guards on duty, um, some believe they were bribed, but they also uh, have to, any Roman guard in this situation would be dead or killed because they didn't carry out their duty. So Jesus can, we know in John 20, 19, we know Jesus in this resurrected body can move through walls. So why move the stone? If Jesus can just go through walls at this point and appear where he wants to appear, what's the point of having a, a stone get moved? And, and, and I think for Luke, the point is he moved the stone for us so that we could see it and we could recognize that it had been moved. The moved stone is the historical point on which we can hold. Verse 3, then they went in, so they actually did go into the tomb, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the disciples did not move the body. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, here's that word again, behold, Two men stood by them in shining garments. Look at this. Two men were in there. Who are these people? Frankly, it's the best of all the angels in heaven. Whoever these two are got the best job of all eternity. They get to announce that Jesus is ridden. So we don't know the names of these two messengers. Just And in Luke, they're two men. He, I think, brings a more secular phrase on that. Other gospels, they are angels. But he's like, two men were there, and they were in shining garments. So think sequins, things that reflected light. The shining garments is the part that Luke would get from his interviews. And he's really pointing out here that they're perplexed. They don't know what's going on. And they're, they, there's two men there not dressed like Romans or Jews. They have shining garments. And we know from history that, you know, unless that's armor, most of the gear back then did not shine necessarily. So... 
his body is gone. It's not there, which means Jesus' body never saw decay. Psalm 16.10. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Fulfills another prophecy. Jesus' incarnate flesh was not even there. There was no body. So it's not just that his flesh died and his spirit lives on. The body disappeared. And again, one of the early heresies came up was the Gnostics. And their argument was, well, Jesus was just spirit to start with. It's like, no, they watched the dead body get put in a tomb and then they showed up and that body was gone. So hundreds like this when it comes to prophecies, things that get taught. This is what they preach in Acts chapter 2. They preach these, these points when they talk. But there was, it was not just that he was dead in spirit, it's that he was dead physically, and then the physical body disappears. And in this, they are, verse 4, greatly perplexed. The women are diaporio, and, and the, and entirely at a loss. It's not like the disciples came up with a scheme and planned this out. They had no idea what was going on, even though Joseph, Jesus told them. The disciples, it, it, by the way, it's not that the women were smarter than the men disciples here. The women were diaporio also. They had no idea. So it's great that they were going to tend to the body, and that's loving and sweet and wonderful. But the women were not smarter. It wasn't a male-female thing. They were absolutely complex. What happened to the body? They're probably thinking the Romans stole it. So they go into the tomb. They actually walk in there. And then they see these two shiny men. This is way beyond anything that they were expecting. So the, in, in Matthew and Mark, the angel speaks to them. They have more of a conversation. Luke just edits that down. Um, the, the, in Matthew and Mark, there's one of the angels that speaks. In Luke and John, there's two men there. And it's not noted that only one of them speaks. They were then afraid, verse 5, they were afraid and phobias, where we get our word phobia. And they bowed their faces to the earth. They didn't know what was going on, but it was supernatural and it was well beyond their understanding. Cognitive dissonance at its worst. They don't worship the men, but they, they definitely bow in fear, looking away. And that's what the angel addresses. They said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. So instead of accepting the bowing as some sort of worship, these two messengers basically say, you need to be looking for Jesus. It's like a rebuke. And, and again, from Angel's perspective, whatever that is, they see the whole thing getting played out. They see the spiritual implications of this. And it's probably confounding to an angel why these women were upset. Why are you upset? The greatest thing in the eternity of the world, the entire hinge of history is happening now. And you're looking for dead people. You're looking for bodies. So they, don't, they have to take it on faith here and not by sight. Even the women that went into the tomb had to take this on faith. Why are, you, why are you seeking the living amongst the dead? Devoted, but they're mourning. And many Christians act that way even today. They're devoted to Christianity. They're devoted to a religion. They're even devoted to Jesus, but they still have their eyes on the wrong thing and they're seeking life and dead things of the world. And that question, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? Why do you continue to do the things that lead to death when God wants you doing the things that lead to life? And this question, and of course, he's not here, but he's risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We say this every Easter. But the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
That becomes one of those key evangelical questions that we can use. It's the first one that the angels used with these women at the tomb. Why are you seeking living things? Why are you seeking living things from a world of dead things? Stop doing that. We do not find spiritual life in human works, human theories, human efforts. We find spiritual life in the spirit and truth of God alone. In this, we worship Jesus Christ alive and risen. He is life. Why are you seeking the living? He is the maker of life, and humans think the maker of life itself might be dead. And again, from the angel's perspective, it's like, how do you even do that? How do you as humans think that death is the thing? It's not the thing. He is not here. Humans love to bury and honor their dead. This is where I geeked out this week. The one difference with Jesus, how the human nature is when someone dies, we want to honor that person that died. Death is bigger in our head than it is in the, in the spiritual world. God doesn't seem to be as concerned about it. The first emperor of China, when he was buried, had his armies and his craftsmen make 8,000 life-sized terracotta warriors, and they buried all of them in army arraignments so that when he got to heaven, he had his army with him. And each of those little soldiers looks like a different human being. It was modeled after actual people. There's some chubby ones and some skinny ones. It's a very unique army. 8,000 terracotta warriors in the Szechuan province. King Tut, you all know where he was buried, right? They put him in a pyramid. It's one of the wonders of the world. In fact, a number of the wonders of the ancient world were tombs. This is what people do. We love our tombs. Um, also in Egypt, though, this is one I like. Kam al-Shafqa is buried underground in the catacombs, and in the middle of the catacombs is a banquet hall set up and ready so when he gets to the other plane, he can have a meal with all his dead relatives. So if you need an extra dining room table that's not in use, you can go there. Darius, Xerxes, both from the Old Testament, we know where they're buried because burial is a big deal to humanity. We don't forget where people get buried. Even Zoroaster is also in, in Iran or Persia, all pre-Jesus. People who start religions have burial mounds that we pay attention to. We don't lose these. We don't just accidentally forget where somebody got buried. That's not what humans do. Heck, we even know where Adam is buried. You guys know that? The claim is he's buried in the cave of the patriarchs. It's located in Hebron. There's four biblical couples, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. They're all buried in the tomb of the patriarchs. We know right where it's at. Every major event in human history, we know where those people are buried at. You can go to Jim Morrison's grave if you want to. It's in France, I think. Moses is buried in the valley across by Mount Peor near Mount Nebo, east of the Jordan River. We know where Moses is buried. We don't forget where people get buried. Rachel's tomb, Palestinian city of Bethlehem. That's where she's buried. King David, he's buried with his fathers in the tomb of the kings. We know where these people are buried. Now, picking out which bones belong to which person, it's hard to do without living DNA. There is no grave for Jesus Christ, none. Even if he was just a prophet, that we would know where he was buried. And they say, well, we know where the garden tomb is. Right, it's empty. That's the whole point. And there's debate over if it's the garden tomb or not. You wouldn't debate those things if there was actually a body left in there. We would know exactly 
There would be no debate about which one it is. Buddha is buried in Kushingar, India. Confucius is buried in Kufa, the Shandang province of China. Muhammad, he's buried under the green dome in the sacred chamber. We know where Muhammad's buried. Part of the Hajj for every Muslim is to go walk around his tomb. Medina, Saudi Arabia. Joseph Smith, he's buried in the family cemetery in Nauvoo, Illinois. We know right where Joseph Smith is buried. Jews even pray at a wall that's the remnant of their dead temple. This is how much we embrace death as humanity. But these angels are like, why do you seek the living among the dead? What did Christians then do in our fascination with honoring and elevating death? Well, here's what we did. We took relics like nails, roods or scraps or splinters from this cross and the Shroud of Turin. Millions of people every year visit cathedrals that have been built over a nail. Cathedrals of the Peter of, of St. Peter, cathedrals of St. Paul. We know exactly where these people are buried. Catholic Church muddies it up a bit. They would take fingers of saints, put them in a little glass box, and build an entire cathedral around that glass box because that's the finger of St. Ignatius or something to that effect because they're looking for life amongst the dead. And these are people that were alive. So they want to honor even the followers of Jesus have cathedrals built over them. Tombs still kept, venerated. Many of the tombs lie beneath all of these things. Hundreds of early Christians have been buried all over this planet, mostly in Europe, around cathedrals. And we know where they're at. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And so we don't honor a dead person. We don't honor a grave at worst Christians honor a nail that they think came from the cross. But there's hundreds of these nails out there, by the way. So a lot of them are definitely fakes. But either, anyways, the Catholics made a lot of money off of people coming to visit these artifacts. Amazing, but not a surprise. They should have remembered, and that's what the angel asked them to do. Verse 6, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? If you want to worship Jesus, don't go to his tomb. Go to his words. Remember what he said? saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Boy, the way Jesus said it is really similar to how Luke says it. Yep, he died, he was crucified, but he's going to rise again. This becomes a pivotal point of all of human history. From here forward, what we have to do as Christians is remember what Jesus said. And not only that, how he said it. Remember how he spoke to you. All four accounts take an effort in the Gospels, all four Gospels take an effort of recording how and what Jesus said in his ministry. They're summarizing three years of ministry in 20-some chapters. It gives us a four-way four perspective on the teachings of Jesus so that we can remember what he said and did. We can remember his parables. We can remember the tone he had, the way he said things. Each of these biblical teachings have different threads, but it creates this like VR perspective on Jesus with the four Gospels before we even had the technology for it. How he spoke to us would then be the words of God. And the word of God in Luke is definitely going to be a, a thread that we have throughout the book of Luke. Luke 23, 35, Peter, Simon says the word is going to be a sword. Luke 8, uh, 
that there's going to be resurrection. Luke 9, 22 and 43, there's going to be predictions about this resurrection. Luke 11, 32, the only sign you're going to get is the one of Jonah, death, resurrection. 12, 22, don't worry about your lives. Luke 14, 27, we all got to carry our crosses. Luke chapter 16, there is an afterlife. Don't worry about this life. Luke 17, 19, faith is what will heal you. Luke 17, 22, want to see things, but you won't see things. He said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The, what we need to focus on, Luke 18, 31, it's, I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. Luke 18, 33, I'm going to rise again on the third day. This is all a thread that these two messengers are saying, remember how he taught you. He taught you this would happen, and you doubted him. What they need to do is repent of that, turn from that, and believe him. The Greek here is a comparative form. In the manner of, or even as, the same as. Jesus taught the same as what you see. Compare what you see to what he told you. And I honestly, again, this is evangelical. You can use this. What people see is going to say much more to them than what we say to them and how we react to it. The word remembery or using memory, God's collected Bible becomes the primary tool of our faith. More so than even the Jews, I think. That we study His Word because, this, because of this command, this direction that we get. All these things are recorded, are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished, Jesus said in Luke 18.32. For He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, He shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spit upon, and they shall scourge Him and put Him to death, and on the third day he'll rise again. Remember that? Remember Jesus said that? That all had to happen. He uses the word must in there. This must be delivered into the hands of sinful man. Then they knew that this had to happen. And this kind of blows my mind. Why did all this have to happen? They had to know that he was dead, verse 1. They had to know where he was killed and that his body wasn't exposed, verse 2. They had to know that it was not stolen. There were Roman guards. And it's all unexplainable. It's, it's all possible because all of the other options, the Romans stealing him, the disciples stealing him, the don't know where the grave is, the, all of these other options are simply impossible based on what's recorded in the histories. The only possibility that's left is that something supernatural happened. It must be true that Jesus, that everything happened just like Jesus said it would. And in all four Gospels, you have the exact same claim being made by people that lived through this generation. All four Gospels claim the grave is empty. He's not here. And they remembered his words. I think it's funny. The angels didn't have to give up hope because they can see what's going on on the spiritual side. Um, but remembering Jesus becomes wise in this advice. You can believe that Jesus rose... But if you don't remember that he rose, you can remember his words. But you can know his words and not know that he rose, and his words are just that of a good teacher, or a bad teacher, because he's leading everybody to martyrdom. If you know his words and you know that he rose, those two things together become something special. You can know he rose and not pay attention to his words, and you get nothing out of it. The Romans believe that he rose. The priests believe that he rose, because they had him come up with another story. But we need to know is that this is plan A that on the third day he would rise again. That's always been the plan. Verse 9, Then they returned from the tomb 
and told all things to the eleven and all and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So Luke's documenting who recorded it, who, who kept this. The first thing people do when they believe both remember the words of Jesus and know the resurrection has happened is you go and tell other people about it. And it doesn't say that they came up with a strategy for this or a plan for this. They simply went back to their friends and family and told them all about it. Jesus rose. I, such, a, such pureness in that that doesn't get lost. Luke cites the sources for the story. He interviewed all these women, which is why he named them. And they told all these things, everything that we just read about, to the disciples and the rest. They don't talk about Arminianism, Calvinism, pre-trib, post-trib. They don't talk about any of that stuff. What they share with people who don't know Jesus rose is that he rose from the dead. They don't get lost in arguments. They simply tell what they've seen. And I love this. It's such a natural way to share the love of Jesus with other people. Here's what I know. Here's what I've seen. Jesus survived the cross, and there was no body. If there was a body, they'd still be using their perfumes on the body. The fact that they come back and all these other people see that the women have come back, and they're not there redressing the body, which would take all day, so that there's the rest of the people in this room become a witness of the fact that these women aren't tending to a body. Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned as a follower back in Luke 8. She, had, she was healed of evil spirits and infirmities. She's been following Jesus ever since. She witnesses the crucifixion and the resurrection. She's listed first, and all the other Gospels list Mary Magdalene is probably the one that said all of this when they got back to the room. Joanna, mentioned in Luke 8 also. Uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa Herod Stewart, she was a rich woman, and she had a lot to lose by tending to Jesus' body. If she's the wife of Herod Stewart, she's walking with the upper classes of society. Mary, being someone who had demons in her, probably not walking with those people. So you have rich and poor here at the, at the tomb. Uh, no concern for appearances. Joanna's just hanging out with her sisters. I love that. Mary, the mother of James. James the Lesser. We know that uh, the, he, his, James the Lesser was the son of Alphaeus, Mark 3.18. So Zebedee is the father of James and John. So it's not the other James. And for me, I always thought it was for some reason. Um, but this is the Mary, the mother of James. There's a lot of Marys, I guess. Mark reports that Salome was there too. Matthew also adds that, that Zebedee's wife, the mother of Zebedee's James and John, was also there. But that's not in this gospel. Likely Luke just lists these three because these are the three he could get time to interview. So he names them in his gospel. It doesn't exclude that there were other women there too. In fact, Luke even says all the rest. So there's, Luke's not saying he's giving you an exhaustive list. Verse 11, the words seem to be to them like idle tales. Again, it's not that the disciples came up with a scheme here, which is the accusation of the first century. They actually didn't believe any of it. They did not believe them. So idle tales, uh, the word laras, is a technical term for babbling. They just think these women are babbling. Oh my goodness, they're going on and on. Uh, babbling, it, it's a medical term that Luke is pulling from his experience as a doctor. It's what people do when they have a fever, they're insane, or they medically lose their mind. 
Jesus is in the tomb. His body's gone. He's risen. This, these ladies have lost their mind. They've gone crazy. The loss of Jesus has caused them to crack or break is the term that Luke's using there. Um, Luke doesn't get into it as much, but the idea that women would be the first witnesses in the Jewish and the Roman world, women weren't even allowed to testify in court because of this belief that women would go on and on. And they wouldn't just state the facts. They would, they would always integrate other things. So they didn't believe them. This is not a good thing. It's not painted as a good thing by the writer. Um, it is the end result of not praying with Jesus in the garden, being at a distance, and falling away. So the disciples initially were not believers. If we presume resurrection's impossible, then we look at all data through the presumptions that we already have. If we think resurrection's possible, you'd want to know more, and that's what happens in verse 12. One of those disciples, Peter at least, Luke does not record John, likely because John is probably off on his island at this point, and he doesn't have the chance to interview John. But he does talk to Peter, and Peter doesn't mention that John's with him in this. When John's gospel comes out, he corrects that little omission in this book. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Point being, one of those disciples did not exclude the idea that Jesus has rose. He wanted to go see for himself. And this is the invitation the Bible gives all of us. Go and see for yourself. Try it on and see if you don't see what, what he wants you to see. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping down, because you got to kind of, says how big the hole was. He saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. The linen cloths are a big deal, because again, it's not the, if the body was taken, they wouldn't remove the linen cloths. They wouldn't leave them in the tomb, because you don't want to touch a dead body. It defiles you. So the linen cloth makes it so you can touch and lift the body without touching it. So the fact that the linen cloths are still there is a big deal for Luke. Peter just needed the nudge. He just needed some believer to give him hope, and he runs for it. It says, but Peter. So all the disciples don't believe them, but Peter. For, uh, first, he is first to be called into this relationship. Jesus has called them the rock. Now he's running to the rock, the hewn rock. And he's just going at it. He arose and run. It implies an excitement, an urgency, an immediacy to it. Peter wants to go see this, and he's anxious to. And again, when we deal with non-believers, there are some non-believers that could care less, or they couldn't care less about the things of God. They're not interested. But there are some people that they want to know because there's something in their life. The Holy Spirit gave them a dissatisfaction with this world, and they want to know what there is about the kingdom of God. What's there to be embraced? Peter has that attitude. He's running towards it. Everything he's got. He saw the linen claws unrent, apparently. Jesus' body must have just passed through them at that point. He marvels to himself, thumazo, to wonder, admire how it's possible. He's not in utter confusion because he remembers what Jesus said. There's no record here that he necessarily sees anything else. But this wonder or admiration, how great is our God that he could even do this? At what had happened, doubt is gone. At this point, he marvels to himself at what had happened. He believes Jesus rose. The doubt is gone. He's seen it for himself. Now what? Jesus willingly accepted punishment, taking the sins of humanity on himself, 
that same humanity gave him the titles of prophet, Christ, and king. He gives up his life as a sacrifice, taking on the role of high priest, and the veil rips because of it. He dies with criminals. He's buried with rich folks, fulfilling hundreds of prophecies. His flesh is killed, but then given life and restored in a new body that goes through tomb walls and, and linen cloths. All of humanity's hate was dished out on him for a season, and God overcomes it. And death looks like it takes his life, but at the end of the day, death loses. That's what just happened. And Peter gets it. This is the rock of the church. He understands it all. He's the first of us to put it all together. The criminal is on the cross, and Jesus gives him a free pass year in heaven. Peter has abandoned Jesus, has denied Jesus. He's done everything wrong, but he's the rock because he sits there and he's marveled at what had happened, believing that it's happened. The walk home for Peter, he's got to be putting all this together. He's just marveling to himself. Oh, it happened just like brain exploding. But Peter's got that trip with John coming back from the tomb to go meet with all the other Christians. And what he's going to do is tell the gospel message. Jesus came, he died for our sins, and he rose. Meaning God accepted the sacrifice. Meaning if we're in Jesus' family, that blood covers us too. Not for some magical formula, but because God says so. God says, if the blood of the lamb is over the doorpost, I will, I will go over that house and death will just pass it by. Jesus rises from the dead, being the first to rise himself from the dead. He is life. Death can't have him. All human history just changed. A perfect, sinless person overcame death, meaning anyone forgiven their sins can overcome death too. Think of that. Anyone can. It changes the rules. Death can only claim people that are under the curse of sin. And the punishment is death for sin. So if Jesus says your sins are wiped away, we can't be claimed by death anymore. And it changes the formula. If Jesus forgives and takes me into his family, death has no hold on me. I'm not chained to it. I don't have to die. I can get a head cold and I can get sick and I can get knee surgery, but I don't have to die. And again, this, the image of this fits with Jesus too. His body was taken, but his life and his spirit wasn't. And the body went with it. Our faith is in a living God, alive, around, moving, relating, loving his people. And if you're walking with him, he's talking and moving with you. Jesus starts to appear to all the disciples. That's the last chapter. We'll finish this chapter on the road to Emmaus next week. He starts the church age and Luke goes right into the book of Acts. Like this is all part of the same work for Luke to write this. He's trying to establish this is how the world changed. And he leaves the end of his gospel at this pivot point where the world just changed. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see how it changed and how the church got started. And Luke's recording all this because he's being paid as a professional historian to document this event because all of the, the known world recognized something just happened. Something just changed. And what just changed is anybody that comes into the life and in the family of Christ Jesus can be saved because the sacrifice he willingly gave covers our sins. Everything changes. And it's not just the Jews, because that veil got torn and the priesthood got taken by Jesus because the priests were full of sin. They lost that authority. 
And so we live the same life. We live under these promises and we don't do it foolishly. We don't do it with a blind step of Kierkegaardian faith. Nonsense. We do it because we've seen other peoples living in the joy and in the spirit of Jesus Christ. They're different than everybody else. We do it because we remember the words of Jesus like we were told to do it. And we see the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus match up perfectly, which means the God of the universe has been planning all of this since before Adam and Eve. That all the sins of the world could be addressed with an eternal, everlasting, holy, perfect, and pure sacrifice. One sacrifice covers all of it. And, these, and he trained the Jews to give us these images over the course of thousands of years so that when Jesus happened, we could marvel just like Peter did at what just happened. Everything changes. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the blessings that you give us. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for giving up your spirit, a willing sacrifice, a um, kinsman redeemer. And Lord, thank you for welcoming us into your family. You didn't have to do that. Lord, we come before you and we know our sin. We know we're guilty. We know we deserve death. We know that there's not one person walking this earth that's been able to fulfill the law in perfection. And so we, the only thing we have is to cling to the promise that you've made us. And we don't do that blindly. We do it because you've kept every promise you've made throughout human history. We have no reason to doubt you. And we're fools if we do. So Lord, we start with the beginning of wisdom. And we look to you and Lord, we come in humility we come with just an open heart. And Lord, we ask you to remember us when we come into your kingdom. And in the meantime, we'll occupy till you come and we'll remember you and the words you said. We are the bride and we're waiting for our groom to come claim us. So Lord, come quickly. We can't wait for that day. And until that time, we just thank you for the church. We thank you for brothers and sisters that are walking together. We thank you, Lord, for the joy that you give, the peace and the hope and the love. And we thank you for all of those things. So Lord, as we eat together today and we fellowship together, Lord, may our house be filled with that love and that fellowship and that joy. So we leave here today refreshed and renewed uh, and rekindled in Jesus' name.